What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Hi, this is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. We are recording this episode a little bit after noon, uh, Wednesday, no, uh, no, <laughs> March the 4th. The so road the, to November. Yeah, so the day after Super Tuesday, obviously... Uh, we knew last night was going to be a big night, a very consequential night. I think it was uh, it was a pretty big news night in as much as the people um, certainly saw that there was a move towards Joe Biden after the, the many, many events of the last week. Uh, the the South Carolina primary being one of them, but only one of them. Yeah. Uh, you know, a, a lot of people... A lot of other candidates uh, dropping out. You have the—I don't think it's a big driver, but uh, well, you also—you know—you had the de- the de- debate still coming off that. Um, you have the coronavirus, which is not directly um, maybe a key driver, but I think it's an atmospheric driver of all of this. This has obviously been a pretty. Um, dramatic or the you know the last 10 days say has been a pretty dramatic 10 days in American history and and we obviously don't know how the uh, coronavirus thing is is going to play out but i think everybody agrees that it 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 kind of exceeded everybody's expectations i don't have much doubt it exceeded the biden campaign's expectations yeah. i mean they really I guess uh, Sanders won Vermont. He won Colorado. Colorado. Did he win Utah? He did win Utah. Utah. Win Utah. Mm-hmm. He won California, yep. which is obviously far and away the, the most delegates. But even there, the win was not that big. I right. think uh, the current numbers are uh, you know a five or six point margin, maybe even seven, but yeah. not dramatic. And obviously, California is notoriously slow at counting. Obviously, a huge state geographically and by population. So, and also lots of different kinds of voting, like right. methods of voting. Right. So there's you know, so a lot. Yeah, I guess what's unclear to me is, I mean, generally speaking, when we are looking at presidential elections, it's it's always sort of a question of you know the Democrats are just going to keep piling up their their national vote margin because a lot of votes in California. Mm-hmm. I don't I have I at least don't know have not seen any uh, information on whether there's anything about the contours of the reporting so far that gives us any indication of whether or not we're going to expect one of them one or other of them to improve their margins over right. you know as they count we just no idea. Yeah, it's possible when all is said and done they more or less kind of split the delegate hall, right? Or that Sanders gets, you know, slightly more, but it's not kind of a black and white result in that way. The one thing out of South, uh, out of California is that it might follow other states in the split between early voters and late voters. And if early voters broke for Sanders, um, and if they're still counting these early votes and these mail-in votes in California, there's some reason to believe that the, the, the votes that are still to be tallied may favor him more than uh, the ones that 
voted in person after this recent Biden surge. Right. So the, the idea being that that the, the day of voting all gets counted pretty quick, but then you go back and you're doing mm-hmm. mail-in right. voting and all. Although that, yeah. even the day of voting uh, counted pretty quick, we need to caveat because as Tierney is reporting on now, the, it was a mess in California right. and, and in um, Texas with three-hour lines and whatnot. Right. So. Just a quick programming note for our listeners. That voice you're hearing uh, is Matt Shuham sitting in Hi. for Kate Riga, who's in D.C., just uh, moved down there for us and was in the Supreme Court today. So that's why she's she's off the air today. Mm-hmm. So we appreciate you sitting in, Matt. Thanks. Yeah. And uh, on Kate's favorite day and holiday, too, I feel kind of bad about it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, we miss her up here in New York. Sure. So, Matt, you, were, you and I obviously were up late last night covering all the results. Josh, you were in the mix as well. Um, I guess before we dig yeah, too deep into it, we take care of a little, a little, little business. Yeah. Do you love to save a, buck, save a buck by skipping the coffee shop? Are you a do-it-yourselfer, a brew-it-yourselfer? I think a lot of people may get into brewing it themselves True. over the next <laughs> weeks and months. Um, a lot of people... Coffee shop's uh, looking less, yeah, uh, yeah. less appealing and these not, days. You know, not, to, not something to be um, made light of, but, but uh, you know, there's a lot of anxiety in the country yeah. about... about Sort of casual, the sort of the casual mixing that yeah. is that is much of our lives. You right. know, go to the this store, that store. You know, kind of touch this, touch that. Yeah. Uh, in any case, that aside, uh, Grady's Cold Brew is also a brew it yourselfer. You asked, and they delivered. Brew it yourself with Grady's New Orleans style coarse ground coffee blend, designed to work in any cold or hot coffee maker. One bag makes twenty four servings of Grady's Cold Brew exactly the way you want it. Order online and receive 16 ounces of their famous blend of 100% Arabica beans and French chicory in a resealable pouch for long-lasting freshness. Are you ready to give it a swirl? Get 20% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. Or you can order at Amazon.com. You can order Grady's at Amazon for next day delivery. Nice. All right. So, Matt, tell us uh, one or two of your kind of big takeaways from last night. Obviously... We had Virginia, I think, was a poll close call for Biden. We saw him doing very well in the South. We saw Sanders perform more strongly in the West. But give us kind of a sense, give our listeners a sense of a couple things that jumped out to you in the results last night. Yeah, the first is one that we touched on earlier, um, but it's the big obvious point of the night, which is that if you made up your mind in the past few days, you went more than two for one in most cases for Biden. Um, I spoke to Sean McElwee, who's a uh, the executive director of Data for Progress. It's kind of a lefty think tank that also does a lot of polling. And, you know, not not generally a fan of Joe Biden's politics, but he, he released one of the most recent polls right before Super Tuesday. And he told me on the phone yesterday that as they were getting results back, by the hour, you could see people shifting to Biden. Interesting. So that momentum, and he said the polls in the days before Super Tuesday didn't fully capture the the slide toward Biden because it kept happening up until people arrived at the voting booth. So that's the one thing. Um, the second sort of a, a corollary of that is that he did not stick in the South. He was projected to do well um, all over the South. He did better than some polls had projected in Texas. He ultimately won Texas, did way better than polls were projecting in Virginia, um, won by a lot. But then he also went into Minnesota with help from Amy Klobuchar's endorsement, went into Massachusetts, uh, and may even win uh, Maine, which is still being counted. And right. that's a, a sign that, uh, you know, that should have been Bernie Sanders' electorate, but a lot of uh, 
coalition, I guess is the word around around Joe Biden. Yeah, coalescence. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and Josh, you had a post this morning about Bernie Sanders. Let me let me ask you, Matt. Where did you? I was looking for that last night. Did you write that up? That interview with him was it in the was it in the live blog? Yeah, uh, yeah. We broke it okay. up over a few things in the live okay. blog, and then at the end of the night, I did sort of a recap that included that. Oh, okay. So that, uh, yeah, because I was I think mid evening I was I was I was looking for that because as you said, it's sort of like I mean, not I wouldn't expect anything else of them, but you know, kind of good for them. It was not what they as an organization sort of institutionally would have wanted to see. But yeah. but it was I remember when that um when those numbers came out uh early yesterday, I was like, wow. Like mm-hmm. and I even kind of asked because I, I guess they have a um one of the newer polling methodologies, which is basically to Texting, mass texting, um, which is a real thing. This is not like, you know, kind of one of those, uh, you know, online surveys on Drudge or something like that. This is a real methodology, but it is new. So I was sort of like, wow, is it, you know, really... it didn't Moving get everything there. right. I mean, it had Elizabeth Warren up in some places where mm-hmm. she wasn't wasn't really up, but the overarching sort right. of trends that it showed did bear out. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. So, Josh, you had a post this morning about Bernie Sanders' ceiling. I think you know Sanders kind of dominating the early states in the primary with around twenty five ish percent, um, which is a tough. It's tough to build on that, obviously, and it's gotten it's gotten some interesting responses from readers. Tell us kind of about the premise of that piece, kind of what you dug into there. Yeah, well, in a in a divided field, obviously, getting between twenty five and thirty percent is really good. You can win. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of questions there. I think one of the big questions over the last month has been: Is it a divided field that is preventing Sanders from kind of building the coalition? You still got a lot of people in; they're all taking a little support. Or is it Sanders' difficulty building on his coalition is keeping so many people in? Because because people see he's not building, and people are like, "Hey, it could be me, right?" Um, and so it's not in my mind. It's not that that you know twenty five percent is hard to build on. It's that. If you if you if you look over the last month, and and a number of us have been saying this, if you know he's been dominating the race with, say about twenty five percent of the vote. You know some some states it's been low twenties, other states, um, I think actually in Nevada it was it was well into the yeah it was yeah. it was very high. But if you look at you know most states, most national polls, it's been in, in the mid twenties, maybe mid high twenties. Mid-high 20s is not a majority. It's not even close, right? So that is, it is a weird thing to be dominating quite as much as he has been dominating and as he has been perceived to be dominating when you still have the overwhelming amount of voters who are not supporting you. And the real question has been, well, is it just, you know, because what normally happens is you start there and as you go, people start kind of coming over to you and you build and stuff like that. So was that like a ceiling or is it just a coming? Uh, but again, that reality is you have an overwhelming number of voters who are not supporting you. Doesn't mean they oppose you, not supporting you yet. So we had these kind of questions out there. And my sense has been that there is what gives the Sanders movement a lot of its strength is its insurgent ethos. It has an oppositionist ethos within progressive politics. And I mean this in the sort of, I mean, there's one sense in which Sanders people would say, like, we are progressive politics. It's the other people we're against. But I mean, in the in the larger sense of that word, in progressive politics and democratic politics, 
And that gives that movement a great deal of its strength. And it has a critique of what mainstream democratic politics has been for the last 20, 30, 40 years. It also, that also creates some inherent weaknesses if you're talking about actually winning majority elections within Democratic caucuses or Democratic, uh, you know, primary uh, uh, battles. And that is, it has a, in many ways, a, a, a confrontational, antipathetic relationship with a lot of the rest of the Democratic Party. And the way that Sanders usually and a lot of his prominent supporters often articulate that is it's us versus the establishment, you know, us versus the kind of the big wigs and the insiders and stuff like that. And if you notice over the last uh, few days, there were a number I, I noticed a few times when Sanders surrogates on the TV network saying like, I think there was a someone a couple nights ago on Chris Hayes show saying, look, this is just the billionaire class, you know, kind of pulling it together to, to make it happen for Joe Biden or it, uh, another one kind of like, you know, the, the, the establishment is propping Biden up. Well, there are millions of Democratic voters who, you know, by definition, like 60 or 70 percent of voters can't be the establishment. I mean, that, that, that makes no sense. I mean, you can – Various different ways you can you can um, you can you can use the the word, uh, but I think that th- there's this basic issue that I mean it's not an accident that Bernie Sanders is not a Democrat. In a way, it's a totally nominal thing, but it's like a branding thing. It's a signifier, right? And again. I would say the great majority of Sanders supporters are people. They supported Obama. They supported this person. You know, they're just they've been Democrats all their lives. But there is a key thing about the movement that says to a lot of the rest of the party, and not just kind of like bigwigs and insiders, just kind of ordinary Democrats who vote every election, kind of like. That whole thing you've done over the last 20 and 30 years, you blew it. And it was a mistake. And you made these mistakes and you were supporting big money and doing this and doing that. And, you know, I think all of us recognize that there are some real realities behind that critique. There's all sorts of ways that the Democratic Party has shifted to the left over the last uh, over the last uh, decade or so. But if you are kind of an insurgent movement, and you were basically saying, oh, we want to take over. We want to, you know, give us the keys. We're going to manage the operation. For the people who currently manage the operation, and again, not Nancy Pelosi or kind of this big boner, but just the kind of the the, the, the voters, If that's a that's a tough sell. You know, if, if you're kind of saying that, like, you know, we think you fucked up, so let us be in charge now. Well, kind of, if, if you're those kind of the rest of voters who have a, who, have a kind of a a, a a different take, you're kind of like, well, I, you seem to kind of see me as the enemy. So why, right. why am I giving, why am I giving you the keys? And, and so there's a lot that is tied to the strength of the Sanders movement. Um, that is also, that is also limiting to it. Now, having said all this again, I know tons of Sanders voters who have been Democrats for all their lives voted for Obama, have been 100% clear from the beginning, I'm going to vote for whoever the nominee is. But there's also something in the DNA of the movement, and especially its most prominent 
its most vocal supporters. And that is, that's a, you know, that's a thing. You know, every, everybody when, when they're, and, and this is something the Biden people have to do now if they are kind of, you know, if he's going to be the front runner now, everybody's got to tell a story about the larger coalition that makes it possible for everybody to be part of it. And the story both has to be true, but also like work, right? And those aren't the same thing, right? Um, I mean, there's lots of things you can say that are true that are highly divisive about the party, but that's not going to work as a, as a, as a coalition. So um, that's, that's, I think that's what happened. And again, you see, one of the things that I think is, is a problem right now is, I mean, look, a lot of Sanders people are really bummed this morning. This is a, a sharp reversal of fortune, and that is a bitter, bitter pill. I'm not saying the election's open, but you know, over. But like, this is this is not where we thought it would be a week ago, and that is going to have some some. There's a lot of pain, a lot of bitterness, a lot of anger, um, and so uh, you know, you you need. The, the, the winners always need to find a way to kind of like, all right, let's kind of look at this all a little differently and kind of, again, tell a story where we can start right. putting this back together. Yeah, it was interesting last night to see Sanders sharpen his attacks on Biden in a real way. And, you know, granted, he didn't mention the former vice president by name, but in his speech, he was saying one of us... I think they were the doing like a YMCA, exactly. spelling out the letters and hand signs in the back of That's him. That's true, exactly. One of, one of his quotes was, you know, one of the candidates in this race opposed the war in Iraq. That's me. Uh, another candidate, you know, led sort of led us into it. And then he was talking about social security cuts and uh, credit card companies and just kind of ticking through, you know, his critique of Biden's record. So it'll be interesting to see if Sanders really go, if that kind of continues. I expect it probably will as we go yeah, into... I mean, look, the race isn't over. Yeah. And like you gotta, you know, you, you can't, I mean... No one can expect Sanders to basically say, all right, I've already lost this thing, <laughs> right. so I'm going to kind of start chumming up right. to it, you know, now. It's a delicate thing because, you know, y- you... And we were just talking about both. how to frame the results in a way. Biden does have a, a lead in the delegates now. It's not it's not a overwhelming lead. I it's, guess a, it's, it's a it's relatively a, small yeah. lead. It's it's more that we were going... Like a week ago, we were thinking that, that Sanders would have a, an unstoppable yeah, lead at right. this point. It could yeah. have gone either way last night. It could have happened that Biden did get stopped uh, in Texas. The Virginia lead could have been a lot smaller. Sanders could have won Maine, Massachusetts, Minnesota. Could have been a landslide in California. Um, to tie it back to the point about... Yeah, his, even, even with a comeback, he still right. could have been way behind right. in, yes. in, in delegates. Yeah. To tie this, the Sanders messaging about the establishment is interesting because, in a lot of the in a lot of ways, the Democratic electorate is slightly to the left of Democrats in D.C. And if you were to group Democratic policymakers uh, and compare them to that electorate, there is it, there does seem to be a division on uh, public option, which most people support, and that that wasn't the case in Congress uh, during Obamacare, the Ob- Ob- Obamacare debate, and so on. But when you try to expand that argument to the electorate, it gets a lot more complicated. The way that Sanders has tried to make that anti-establishment sentiment of an issue for voters is his argument is, I'm going to bring in a lot of new voters. So the people that currently vote in Democratic primaries, there are a lot of them that agree with us, but the only way we're going to be able to win this primary is if we bring in this whole new set of voters to redefine the Democratic electorate and make it 
look like Sanders asserts the the broad uh, policy desire of the American public, which is, according to Sanders, uh, socialized health care, a huge Green New Deal, and so on. Um, what's happened so far in this primary is he's failed to change the Democratic electorate. Um, there have been state after state where if these new Sanders voters had turned out and had signed up for his policy program, that would have uh, made him a clear front runner. But for example, yesterday in Virginia, uh, the turnout did beat records in 2016 and 2008, but they weren't, that wasn't a Sanders turnout. It was a Biden turnout. Yeah. <laughs> so just like losing those first three states was damaging for Biden because he was the electability candidate, losing the turnout race is damaging for Sanders because he's the turnout candidate. And his whole argument is, I'm going to remake the Democratic Party with a whole new electorate. I'm going to win the general election with a whole new elect electorate. And when that doesn't materialize, it sort of cuts at the foundation of his campaign, which, again, the fundamental notion of his whole campaign is that not only do Democratic insiders, policymakers, think tanks, etc., not represent the American people, but neither does the Democratic primary electorate. And if you can't remake that picture of who's voting in primaries, it's not going to work out. Yeah, I mean, even that, I mean, look, th this is, <laughs> I've been doing this for a long time. And, and believe me, the, the sort of the left Democrat, we're going to change the shape of the electorate. Mm -hmm. That one's been around for a long time. It is really hard to do. There's right. a reason that, that, let me, let me back up a little bit. There are very important reasons to try to do that, and to in significant ways you can do that. But everybody who's worked at this for a long time, and I don't mean people who've just commented for a long time, I mean people who do this for a living, it's really hard. People who, I mean, look, people who don't vote don't follow politics. That, that's, I mean, you know, again, it, it's, um, it's not for lack of trying that, 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 um, uh, political organizers and operatives. It's its not that this didn't occur to anybody. It's really, really hard. There's also significant questions about whether or not non-voters are in any way ideologically better for Democrats than, than the voters, than the existing voters. I mean, in a lot of ways, non-voters, uh, I mean, there are good arguments that they're not more left it's, but it's more that, that they're, 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 because they are not strongly part of the political process, they don't have what political scientists call articulate, you know, kind of fleshed out political ideas that, that make sense in conventional political, you know, kind of all over the place sort of stuff. Um, and, and to your point, I mean, I think the, the you know, the, the Sanders argument about like Virginia and stuff is that didn't really expand the electorate. It's just closer to a general election electorate, right. you know, kind of a heavy turnout. But again, <laughs> the, where there has been bigger turnout, it's been better for Biden. So yeah, it's a big, um, it, it's a it's a real gap in his argument. Yeah. Before we look forward a little bit, I wanted to just recap a, a couple moments from last night. One is uh, kind of a, a scary, startling, but in a way, harmless moment last night on stage when Joe Biden was delivering his victory well, it's, speech. It's all fun and games until someone gets assassinated, <laughs> exactly. right? Yeah. Uh, a few anti-dairy uh, protesters bum-rushed the stage. This was in Los Angeles where um, Biden was giving his big Super Tuesday speech. Um, got on the stage, 
tussled with Jill Biden, uh, Joe Biden's wife, and Simone Sanders, a, a you know a prominent Biden advisor, big time cable news surrogate. I think she's she's basically the the head com the the communi- head communication spokesperson, yeah. Yeah. communications person. She right. basically tackled one of these protesters and dragged them off the stage. I mean, it was really kind With of excellent form too. It was pretty wild to see. I think she tweeted something like, "I broke a nail," and. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah. it kind of became like a meme. Exactly. I mean, it was pretty, like, badass, right? It was badass, I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, um, I mean, it was pretty wild to see, I mean, to get that close. And, like, I know, you know, some people were pointing out Biden no longer has Secret Service protection. Um, I guess it's been long enough since he's been in office that maybe that... You can also, like, decline it. I don't remember what the, exactly the rules are now with yeah. vice president. But, you know, if it wasn't such a harmless, uh, you know... Yeah, it was of, it was a little disturbing. And event, the thing, the, yeah, the thing that scary. really uh, uh, jumped out to me is that there was one woman, like one woman rushes up and she gets up and she's jumping around. They kind of tackle her. They kind of, and tackles, maybe a little lower state, yeah. grab her and pull her off. And then a few seconds later, a couple more make it on. Yeah. And that is like, that's worrisome. Because again, it it's it's kind of hard when the first person just makes a dash but once that happens, when you do have real security, you get a couple guys go up there and, and surround the mm. the politician and stuff. It shouldn't it shouldn't happen really quickly after that. And um, I think when you watch, it was like Simone Sanders and like another press person, yeah. kind of dragging them off the stage. It was sort of like, wait, like is there any security? I mean, it's not just like, you know, you don't need secret service just to have some security. Yeah, right? even right. the event, it's, even the venue itself should have some yeah, staffing I, kind I of thing. I think there was like, um, I think I saw some sort of, you know, kind of brawny guys, like a little distant that maybe they, but it was, it was that was a little It worrisome. has defined, uh, this campaign um, has played through the media like a, battle for the Democratic Party. And we've seen this in other campaigns. Amy Klobuchar, before she dropped out, canceled an event because protesters um, who were protesting her work as a prosecutor um, sort of took the stage and uh, the event couldn't go on. Elizabeth Warren was had been protested by uh, charter school advocates. Um, Bernie Sanders gets interrupted. Uh, I saw one just recently. I'm not sure what the cause uh, pro, was. Pro-charter school advocates? Yeah, she yeah. was in... Uh, I bet they're pretty low energy. <laughs> I, forget, I forget the state. Um, but she, so it has defined this campaign that it it seems like there's a lot of awareness among activist communities, even on the fringe, that you know if they do something that like that, they're going to get a lot of media attention. But also that this is an election where a lot of uh, Democratic uh, Party ideals are sort of up for debate. I'm not yeah. sure if drinking milk is one of those but um, <laughs> yeah i guess is that like a there. vegan thing because it was sort of everybody's like what are you what are you talking about right right because it's not like this isn't like they're dairy farmers who need bigger subsidies or right. something like that this is like an anti a yeah. militant anti-cheese faction yeah, there's just something in the air i mean it's i think know. another thing that that happens and, and i think they kind of got a lesson if you can take it too far in the demo, if you remember back in 2016, oh God, I'm losing track here, but I'm pretty certain this 2016. Back in 2016, Bernie Sanders had one of his rallies disrupted by Black Lives Matter right. activists. And they came up and they just kind of started talking on the mic and uh, there was some singing. And, and a key thing is in a democratic context, you can't have like a bunch of like bouncers come in and like knock those people's yeah. heads or even necessarily 
pull them off. I remember when that happened, Sanders just kind of like backed up and let them have the stage. I mean, obviously there there's a uh, there are all sorts of good reasons uh, in a democratic political context that you're just not going to have your off-duty police officers who are doing security come in and like tackle a couple Black Lives Matter activists. Yeah. That's not going to happen. So it does give an opening for this. And um, look, you, you know, uh, political rallies are not sacrosanct. There's all sorts of activism and different ways to do it and stuff like that. But when you kind of rush in a case like yeah, that, yeah. there's nothing they did that was violent, but Spooky. rapid motion like that yeah. and getting in proximity, people have very good reason to think you might be. And that's like, that's a different thing. That's yeah. not cool necessarily. Yeah. So Matt, you wrote a piece this morning before we came in here that is a, a prime piece for our, our subscribers. So if you're a, a TPM member, go check it out if you're not sign up and you can uh, get in on the phone. Tell us kind of what to look out for going forward a little bit. Um, some of the next contests, sort of where the race goes from here a little bit, if you could. Yeah. Um, well, you know, yesterday, something like 13, 1400 uh, delegates, I forget the exact number, were awarded. And uh, before April, so over the course of the next few weeks, um, so really, thirteen hundred? Yeah, because um, there's a ton in California. And Texas, yeah, it was like a hundred North Carolina, hundred so, Virginia. So those so. current, so those current numbers that have it like you know, kind of four fifty to three eighty nine. That's still with a lot un unassigned. Uh, well, there's Warren and Bloomberg. Um, but they together even got like probably under a hundred, right? Yeah. You know what? Uh, Pause. Pause the recording for a second, and let me uh, let me make sure. Well, let's just keep. Let, let, we can edit it out. Let's yeah. just keep. Re re let's keep recording. Okay. Um, well, anyway, so over the course of the next few weeks, um, before April, is something like a thousand um, delegates will be awarded. Um, the question is, for me at least, um, not who wins these states, but the margins. So, for example, in Virginia, um, Biden won, but he won by a lot. Meanwhile, in Colorado, did Sand he get over fifty percent? I think just over. Okay, yeah, just over. In Colorado, Sanders won, but the margin was a little less with Biden, something like thirteen or fourteen points difference. So we have a lot of states coming up that could do very well for Biden. Uh, Mississippi, uh, Georgia's on April fourth, I think, and there are Michigan is next Tuesday as well, right? That's right. The, kind of the big delegate prize next week, right? Um, and yeah, Michigan is sort of a toss-up, but for example, a state like Washington that's coming up also, um, Sanders is likely to win it. But again, the question is how much, and can you make up these huge uh, margins that Biden is getting in the South? Michigan is an interesting example. Um, like a lot of individual states, there's not a ton of polling. And like we talked about earlier, the shift towards Biden could really distort old numbers. So be careful not to uh, look too far in the past. Um, but Michigan... Uh, Sanders won it last time around in the Democratic primary, then Hillary Clinton lost it to Donald Trump. And sort of the central question that Democrats have had to answer is which candidate can bring back states like Michigan and Pennsylvania to the Democratic Party. So it's it's definitely a win, a, a large state delegate wise, but it's also, it, it looms large in sort of the narrative of this race. Um, if Democrats' number one issue, which they say over and over again is uh, beating Donald Trump, that's sort of a bellwether right there. I think one issue that's important to remember, and this this ended up being a big deal in 2008 and 2016, and it's what Matt is, is referring to here, is that like, right, like, let's say those numbers that we see right now are, are you know, basically right. I think they have 
Biden with like maybe 50 delegates more than more than um, Sanders does. On the one hand, you say like, well, you know, one one good state, you can knock you can knock out that lead. The problem is it's all proportional representation. Mm-hmm. And even with proportional representation, it's also this thing where you have cutoffs within congressional districts and stuff. And so what happens is, and this is what people thought was going to happen in Sanders' direction. Maybe Sanders comes out of this with like a 250-delegate lead. And what happens is because of proportional representation, it is just really, really hard to kind of to cut, you know, to, to, to work away at even a relatively small lead. And there were times in the 2008 campaign where I'm kind of taking these numbers out of my hat, but maybe like, you know, Obama's up by 25 delegates or something. And the Obama people are basically like, you know what? You can't do it. You, can, you just can't do it. And, and obviously they were right. That, that that Hillary Clinton didn't do it. But again, what it you get into a situation where what the other person has to do is not just win or even win consistently. You have to win consistently by big margins. Right. So and that's just that's really, really yeah. tough. That's why when when Virginia came in and it was right at seven PM immediately he knew it was going to be a tough night for Sanders because if they're calling it right when polls close based on exit polling, it's, it's going to be a big margin. Yeah. And meanwhile, you got people waiting in line in Texas and California looking at that and saying like, oh boy, you know, this is <laughs> going to be a big night for Joe Biden. Yeah, and it was. All right. Well, Matt, you mentioned uh, Washington State, which is a good segue for our next topic. But first, let's take just a very short break. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. All right, so the other big story we're following, obviously, is the coronavirus outbreak, which has spread to a number of states in the, U- in the U.S. Uh, the, the, I guess the epicenter, for our purposes, really seems to be kind of in, in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, that's where the total... You know, all of the deaths so far in the U.S. have been. Um, and there's been a few outbreaks in other places. North Carolina's had like one or two isolated cases. There's, I think, up to three now in the New York City area where we, it may even we be are recording. Three. Yeah, it's... Um, some in Los Angeles. I think Mayor Eric Garcetti uh, declared a public health emergency to, you know, basically try to contain this. So obviously this does have political implications. We've been, Josh, you wrote a post day or two ago, kind of looking ahead at the conventions this summer, obviously political rallies of any sort, Democratic or Republican, 
have huge, you know, it's just huge crowds of people in tight spaces together, you know, rubbing shoulders and elbows and all that kind of stuff. Um, my question is kind of what should our listeners kind of be looking out for right now? How worried are you guys individually about it? Uh, where do you stand on that right now? Um, you know, it's obviously, it's, it, it is obviously a big, big story entirely in its own right, entirely apart from anything to do with electoral politics. Um, I do think, I mean, there is a whole question, which is very hard for us to have any way to untangle of what the political impact could be. Like, does it hurt this person or help that person and stuff like that? Um, post I wrote, I think yesterday was basically saying that quite apart from that, which is highly subjective and we can't really know, there are some more mechanical things that I think we can already start thinking about. And that is, are people going to be holding large events in late summer when the political conventions happen? That's a very open question. There have been tons of, uh, uh, you know, commercial uh, trade conventions and stuff. And I guess like South by Southwest is now kind of hanging on by a thread. Right. A bunch of people have already pulled out. And I know Twitter, based in San Francisco, has, I think, asked everyone to work remotely. There was a a report yesterday or Amazon sent out an email to all of its staff that one of its employees uh, is confirmed to have a case of, of coronavirus. And I think they're basically just monitoring it. And um, I don't think they've, impl- you know, so implemented of, any of th- kind of quarantine. Are, yeah. yeah, a lot of things are happening like in the private sector now already. Um, so that is a big question. Like, will we have nominating political conventions in anything like what we're what we're used to that's obviously a big deal something like that happens. one just other yeah. random um not random but i know march madness is coming up obviously the big basketball tournament there's some yeah. some stories or i think i read in axios today there's you know they are considering maybe playing games in empty stadiums like we've seen in europe some of the soccer yep. matches uh yep. which is sort of an eerie sight to huh. see it's a sport weird. a sporting event in a totally empty you know huge cavernous at, space, least, at least there, you can, I mean, it's not the same, but you can still say the game happened, there's sure. a score, you know, every and, and it's obviously equal for both sides. Right. Um, but anyway, so if there's not political conventions, that's a massive thing, at least in terms of the sort of the pace of the campaign. And then there's the fact that, as you said, a lot of politics is about getting, is about doing political rallies. And one of the first things you do in a public health emergency even if things are not catastrophic and some of the dire scenarios that people worry about is you tell people don't hold you know don't uh, cancel big crowd events it's just not a good idea um and it's not just that that happens at political rallies that is the point of political rallies when you say a political rally is great you do big aerial shots and you show the people are packed together um so so this it seems likely certainly possible and, and likely to to some degree that this is going to make the 2020 campaign different just that's just a reality even if and that's without um, imagining you know God forbid some of the some of the the bad scenarios that are are possible right now um, and it's uh, I mean the one thing you know we get as 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 many of our readers know we have these long-standing, email relationships with a lot of individual readers and the sort of the TPM readership as a as a whole. Um, and and a lot of that, that goes back years, even almost decades now. Um, and so we're getting all these reports. And one of the things that I have that's really come out to me beyond the specifics is how much is happening 
that people are finding out about from emails from their employers, from the school districts where their kids attend schools, uh, things in local news. There's lots and lots that's happening, but it's a lot of it is not coming out in the news, and very it, very little of it is coming out, at least in a in a clear, clearly communicated way from the federal government. You know, a week ago, we were still we were still kind of in like in happy talk mode from the federal government, and that has thankfully I think ramped down significantly. But to a great degree, now there's a lot of silence. Like you know, there's a little press conference and stuff. But even even Mike Pence, who is the administration's point man now and is holding, I guess, daily briefings about the coronavirus, yesterday at the White House had a briefing, no live camera, no right. camera shots, no uh, that was no bizarre. live stream. That it's was just like it happened in a weird vacuum, and we saw a couple photos come out from it. Yeah, right. th- that is like I-, I saw a few people say that's so Trump wouldn't watch, and and honestly, it was so kind of weird that I'm not sure that's not true because they weren't saying it was off the record as far as, as at least my no, understanding. It was still reported. It just yeah. wasn't audio recorded or video recorded. Right. So there was not going to be a feed, basically. Right. Um, and and that is just, I mean, that is something that makes people feel weird. Like, wh- what do you mean there's no video? Like, what is like, you know, and... and uh, I did see that on the White House schedule today, there's a... A Pence briefing scheduled for 5.30, and I think it said, you know, camera pool or on-camera briefing mm. kind of thing. So maybe yeah, maybe, that, I mean, maybe that will change today. You know, I, 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 it, it is important in a situation like this to leave open the opportunity, even for bad administrations and bad people, to do better. Right. And, and, mm-hmm. and there has been an improvement. Um, but as, as Matt, you and I have been discussing there's still been this thing where a lot of it's Pence and, uh, you know, kind of the, the, the sort of the, the uh, conference calls that often the sort of the top government epidemiologists and stuff, some of those haven't been happening. And mm. they, they've really tried to, as people predicted and feared, to really kind of take kind of a chokehold on the, on the release of information. And, and, and like... Luckily, it's, you know, it's not as bad as it was a week ago when everybody's saying, ah, country's airtight, you know, buy on the dip and all this kind of (laughs) like totally insane stuff. But it's just, there's not a lot of information. And you read these emails and like someone will say, and we've gotten a lot of these, this is happening all over the place. People saying, you know, I work for this big company. We got an email yesterday, no travel. And that doesn't mean people are like locked in their homes. It just means, you know, that 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 trip, that business trip to the West Coast, don't take it. Right. And and no trips for for the foreseeable future. And certainly that trip you were going to make to, you know, Japan not happening. So things are just locking down. And that has, um, you know, that has big, big financial macro, you know, macroeconomic uh, implications. I mean, I think just on the basis of these emails we've been been seeing, we are we are already going to be in a steep recession in the travel and hospitality industries, hotels, planes, restaurants, stuff like this. When 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 a lot of big companies say no travel. And if you're if you're you work in the LA office and you're in you're in Chicago, come back right now. 
that is that is a big deal. Th- those emails, I think, and the the corporate activity and the local government activity, I think, tells a story about the competing pressures that are on the political side of the Trump administration, and which have seeped into, to some extent, the epidemiological and scientific side of the Trump administration. On the one hand, you have a strong economy. Um, It's definitely being impacted by this, uh, the elections in a few months. And like you said, with the stock market talk, as soon as this became an undeniable issue that the administration had to address, one of the first things they did uh, right after the CDC said this is going to come to America, they sent Larry Kudlow on CNBC. And he said, if you're a smart investor, buy low. The World Health Organization says don't overreact. And in reality, the World Health Organization had not said that. And Kudlow's stock tips are frankly uh, inappropriate for that that kind of TV appearance. What happened subsequently is not only was it undeniable that this was going to come to America, but that it was undeniable that there were going to be deaths. And when those people in the long-term care facility uh, in Washington uh, died from this, that's when you saw uh, Pence uh, come up and say, okay, we're going to brief you every day. You know, listen, we're really taking this seriously. Also, there are these tests that have been held up for weeks because of faulty test results and uh, the FDA not really budging. Um, We're going to send those tests out everywhere. We're on it. And then, now that they've acknowledged that undeniable reality that we're going to have to deal with this in a serious way, we have the second wave of sort of shutting down. This mm-hmm. this uh, briefing being uh, only you know pen and paper essentially. Um, Trump is still kind of being a little bit overly optimistic, and uh, state and uh, local health officials are not really receiving the support you would expect um, from the federal government. So it's almost like at every point in this, the Trump administration has confronted there there are some realities that they can't just wave away. But then the the second and third steps from that, but very like belatedly and begrudgingly. Yeah, yeah, and it it just you get the sense that they're trying to triangulate their their political future rather than address this like the nationwide public health crisis that it will soon be. You know, it's troubling. You know, one thing, I mean, it's very, very troubling. I mean, one thing that I think clearly jolted them and cuts at the heart of, you know, Trump's kind of he-man politics is that he's out there saying, this is a hoax. This is, you know, we're doing great in the United States. And day after day, the stock market was falling like a thousand points a day. And I think the total, roughly, there was about a 10% drop in the in the major equities indexes. Um, and so that uh, contrast, Trump saying, everything is fine, this is BS, and basically the market responding each day like, nope, no, we, what you are saying is nonsense. This is a big deal. We're scared. We're kind of, you know, you know, running from stocks that are that are uh, have a lot of cyclical variability in line with the economy and stuff like that. So I think I think that got their attention. That should not be what gets your attention. And right. you know, it it like <laughs> even the it certainly shouldn't be the stock market that is that is the focus. And I think we all know that to a great degree, it's the stock market, because that's Trump's big political thing about why he's such a great president, because the stock market has gone up significantly um, uh, during his presidency. And it's a, he he's, he is incapable of the kind of leadership that 
a country needs, the kind of public leadership that a country needs in a case like this. And it's also the case, this is where his greatest awfulness and in some ways his greatest vulnerability comes right to the forefront, which is that you know he sees this as basically about him. Right. How is this going to affect me? And look, any president is going to be aware of what are the implications for my political future and stuff like that. That's just a given. That's human nature. And some, in some ways, that's even just how politics is supposed to work because you're supposed to be incentivized not to fuck up, right? Um, but at a basic level, I think everybody gets it's just about him. And that... Uh, that's bad. That's it shows bad. it shows the limits of his politics on this also because you can blame the media for hyping something up. You can blame Democrats. The stock market does not have a liberal bias. You know, people in nursing homes in Washington do not have a liberal bias. And so... Well, certainly epidemiology does not have right. a liberal bias. Right. Like, you know, the coronavirus does not ever have to face a primary, right? <laughs> yeah, in, right. In, in, your, in, in whatever. And, uh, and that's the shoreline of his politics. When you can't go beyond that, you're kind of stuck. You don't have anywhere to go. Yeah, yeah, no, and it's it's uh, it's it's a it's a it's a very serious situation. I mean, I, I think that this is. I mean, my sense is that, you know, it's very frightening to see those those that those pictures out of Wuhan, China. Um, it's heartbreaking, very frightening to see what's happening with a lot of people with very fragile health in 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 Washington State, and you can imagine some very scary scenarios that that we could be moving into and i think we are moving into a scary scenario my sense is is that this will probably be months of a kind of whack-a-mole right that you've got right now we have this outbreak in washington state it seems clear that in very short order they're going to start you know cancel public you know cancel mass events Maybe do some school closures and stuff like that. And hopefully you kind of ramp it down. You slow it down. And okay, so it calms down. And then, you know, a little while later, you find out some other part of the country where it kind of caught hold. And then that. So I I think and I hope because I think this is a, you know, a realistic, non-catastrophic scenario that you have a kind of like a, a war of attrition with this virus going on probably for months. Yeah. Yeah. Until you get. Uh, in in the future, maybe a vaccine, but that's a good year away. Right. It's, one it's thing that I'm stuff. one thing I'm a little heartened to see is that even though we have had a few cases in New York City, it doesn't. When you go out on the subway, when you go out on the streets, it doesn't feel. I mean, this is just anecdotal and subjective, but it doesn't feel like a kind of crisis situation or a totally frightening thing. And I was kind of concerned that you know when inevitably coronavirus did come to New York City. Every major news organization is based here. Obviously, when things impact, you know, where those journalists and newsrooms are located, it just has outsized yeah, it's impact. Magnified, yeah. Uh, when the Ebola doctor came back, I think he was a Doctors Without Borders guy, right? And yeah. remember, there was a story he came back from Africa, went bowling, went out to dinner, went kind of all over the city and just kind of seemed to have a fun night out, leaving whatever germs in his wake. Right. That was, I mean, that was like a big deal. That was yeah, a big yeah, story, obviously. Yeah. And Ebola is different than coronavirus, sure. But, you know, I was in Chinatown in downtown Manhattan over the weekend. I saw maybe like a couple masks. I went out to lunch somewhere, um, you know, because I, I had heard that restaurants and businesses down there had experienced maybe a 40 to 60% slowdown. It was relatively full. It, it just kind of seemed like business as usual. And, and granted, maybe this will get worse and maybe there will be more panic. But I was at least kind of 
encouraged to see, okay, people are taking it seriously, but it's not It's not like it's changed everyday life. I think that's right. I mean, I, I have certainly been, way, like, I've been in, in my head, I've been thinking, like, all right, one day I'm going to come out and, like, half the people are going to be wearing masks, right. right? And then I'm like, oh, okay, you know, now we're really in it. Right. Um, whether that is a reality or just sort of public fear, or, like, I'm going to go down to the subway and it's like, you know, deserted or something like that. And I certainly have not, you know, you see like a very occasional mask, but I assume in most cases those people are sick and probably don't have, you know, they just have a cold or whatever and they're trying to be civic minded or something like that. Um, But yeah, it's been, you know, it's moving very quickly. I think it's only, what, it's only like three days since we had the report of the first, this woman who had traveled to Iran. And now we have this... uh, a guy who lives in New Rochelle, which is basically right... Is New Rochelle actually in the... I always it's in Westchester like, County, I think, a northern suburb, right? Right, the but city? kind of right where the Bronx hits right. uh, Westchester. So a suburb, but basically functionally within New York City and uh, works in New York City, um, has one kid who is in college in New York City. My understanding, again, I'm sort of... I don't have the news right in front of me, but I believe that both of his children, one of whom is in a... Uh, high school uh, up in New Rochelle and one of whom is in college in New York City. Like there's a cluster. I mean, a a bunch of people in that family have now tested positive. Um, So it's moving pretty quickly. I think it is very hard to imagine that those are the only people in in the, you know, uh, eight or 10 or 12 million people who are not just in New York City, but the immediate sort of closely tied suburbs that have it. It's, you know, it's a thing. One note on that, and this goes to perhaps the most damaging thing that the Trump administration has done, and we touched on it earlier, is testing. Um, The rest of the world had a WHO test that I believe was out of Germany. We chose to develop our own test in the CDC. It did not work. Um, the FDA eventually stepped in and said, okay, the part that doesn't work, we do not that's not really necessary. You can still use these tests. Even with that, it's slow to mass manufacture these things, uh, or at least it, it has been slow. Uh, recently, the CDC authorized, or it may have been the FDA, authorized localities to do their own testing. Uh, so New York can now uh, provide its own tests. Um, but and I think that only started like two days ago in the city, this even week. yesterday. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But the effect of that is the cases we know about are the cases that were tested on a severely limited supply of tests. So as this testing gets underway, um, we're going to see a lot more positives, which um, counterintuitively intuitively is a good thing. And, and Mike Pence, to his credit, finally acknowledged that this was the case, that finding more tests in the United States is a good thing because it means we won't be burying our head in the sand about the true extent of, of the spread of this virus. Well, it's one of the things, you know, you hear from, you know, those emails that we're getting from, you know, kind of near the, 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 the epicenter in, in Washington state is people, you know, people are hearing from public authorities in the region, you know, go about your business avoid close contact with people and people like, okay, wait a second. I have close contact with people all the time. Like what am I, you know, not really knowing what to do and also not knowing like, am I in a community where there's like 50 or 60 people or 500 people or to like, does half the people in my town already have it? And, and a lot of that is just, you know, we get scared. This is, this is, this is a serious thing. People get scared, but, we should know. We should know more. And it's 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 wild that um, uh, you know. So so it would be. There's a lot of reasons, obviously, why it would why we need to know that stuff. And the funny thing, and this is, I, I think I had this right. Cause it took me a while to kind of make sure I had the story right. My understanding of what most public health 
people make of this is that the fact that the CDC test had some problems is not itself, you know, you have problems. It's a mm-hmm. new test. It's a new whatever. The key is that the FDA, we have lots of other testing capacity in this country. <clears throat> don't, don't say it. <laughs> um, we have lots of other testing capacity in this country. You know, New York State set up its own test. Lots of, lots of, you know, it's not just the CDC that can do this, but the FDA is the one that has to approve. You can't just, right. you can't just like yeah. go on Amazon and say, hey, I got a, a COVID-19 test. Right. You have to be approved from the FDA. So it's really more an FDA thing mm-hmm. and an interagency thing that the FDA let a long time go by without saying, okay, had some problems here. Every legitimate sort of organization in the U.S. locality that can do this, let's go. Let's let, and that is really the problem more than that. There was the problem with the CDC test because right. you have problems. Right. It's a new thing. Yeah, it's still, not that surprising. Still, kind of an open question: why that happened? Why there was that delay in authorizing these other tests? Uh, I, I don't, I'm not sure we have an answer. I, my, my best guess, or what I have more. What I have seen from people who I've come to see as, you know, reliable, trusted sources is, you know, this is an interagency thing. They're both parts of the health Department of Health and Human Services. I kind of think, you know, you need someone to, you need someone kind of at the top to say, OK, wait, do we need to move? You know, do we need to do something here um, without that? You just have the kind of standard turf wars and whatever. I don't think there yeah. is a good explanation. They just kind of were kind of slow on the slow on slow on the uptick and I think at least what they were saying early on was that um we don't, you know, we need to test people who who've been to China, people who've been close to them. Those are the only people who need, you know, who really uh, need to be tested. You don't test people who there's, you know, you don't go around and test people for random diseases. And that was the message. And it's not clear to me, was that kind of the message that people were hearing kind of even inside? Um, because clearly that was not, uh, that was just not a good idea. And I think that um, for a bit, they were kind of saying, look, we don't have many tests. And that's the priority. And it was the priority. But I think it's kind of inter interagency, just sort of breakdown. People just not being focused enough, which yeah. is which is pretty damn disappointing. Yeah. All right. Well, let's leave it there and uh, remember to wash your hands. Yeah. And also that Grady's Cold Brew. Yes. Sponsor the Josh Marshall <laughs> podcast. Right. Go ahead and get uh, Grady's Cold Brew iced coffee. Maybe more relevant than ever than you can that you can have it delivered to your home. Yep. Uh, get twenty percent off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM or order Grady's on Amazon.com for next day delivery. All right. Thank you, guys. Later.